poem, light, clarity, avocado salad in the morning. After all the terrible things I do, how amazing it is to find forgiveness and love. Not even forgiveness, since what is done is done, and forgiveness isn't love, and love is love. Nothing can ever go wrong, though things can get irritating, boring and dispensable in the imagination, but not really for love. Though a block away you feel distant, the mere presence changes everything like a chemical dropped on a paper, and all thoughts disappear in a strange, quiet excitement. I'm sure of nothing but this, intensified by breathing. That was Poem by Frank O'Hara, read by Megan Hunter. Hi, I'm Madeline and welcome to Off the Books, a show about books and the people that love them. Some episodes are with a regular book club and some are with writers, talking about the books that have shaped their thoughts and lives. Today I'm joined by Megan Hunter, who will be discussing the works that have influenced her writing. Her beautiful debut, The End We Start From, reimagines motherhood in the context of natural disaster and mass migration. Bordering the poetry and prose divide, it is a powerful story that is at once deeply intimate and sweeping in its scope. Um, I was actually lucky enough to read it in its very earliest um, incarnation, and what I was struck uh, struck by about this book is that is Megan's ability to address what are in fact very, very large global issues like climate change, but through such lyrical um, and evocative language, su- such a beautiful voice, and, and it's actually also very funny. Um, it's published in, by Picador in the UK and has just come out in paperback, crowned Waterstone's Book of the Month for May. We'll be discussing The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter, The Waves by Virginia Woolf, and some poems by Frank O'Hara. So thank you very much for joining me today, Megan. Lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, shall we start with The Bloody Chamber mm. by Angela Carter? Well, actually, could you start, because you said something earlier that I thought was quite interesting about how you chose each of these three books. Could you tell us how sure. you came to the decision? Well, I found it quite an agonising and almost impossible decision to choose kind of three books that have influenced my work. And there are books that are more obvious influences, more recent books and ones that I often name, um, such as Bluettes by Maggie Nelson, Department of Speculation by Jenny Offel um, and others. But I thought that I would go a bit sort of further back, really, in my life. I think it's something I've been thinking about quite a lot is really where where one's influences come from, where one's writing voice develops, how it develops, and the reading that you do, even from an early age, probably even earlier age than this, but I I decided not to talk about children's books. But these are my kind of earliest adult or almost adult influences. Um, And I just really, yeah, I I discovered an old piece of writing recently that I, I wrote when I was... 17 and it was really strange because it was quite similar to what I write not that dissimilar to what I write now and I thought what you know that's before I went to university that's before so many of the things that have happened to me I found it very strange that in some ways uh, much of what I think of as my as my voice was already formed I found that a really strange experience and I think I haven't quite processed that so this has actually been a really lovely experience for me going back and looking at some of my earliest influences and rereading them and thinking about, you know, they're not necessarily the things that I read all the time now. Um, some of them are, but some of them aren't. But they're things that are where I can really trace um, quite quite major 
sort of impacts they've had on me really because I think obviously when you're so young your, your mind is still forming literally your brain is you know still kind of meshing together and I think that things have this there's a there's there's an even greater potential for things to influence and change you I think at a young age mm. let's um let's start with the bloody chamber then okay <clears throat> can you tell us when you were about when you were first introduced to this book and the impact that it had on you sure so um I studied this book for my A-levels. Um, I studied this, I think I was very lucky, I studied this book and I studied Surfacing by Margaret Atwood. Um, those are the two main ones, and we also did A Doll's House by Ibsen. I think my teacher was obviously a feminist, and um, I think it was, yeah, I was very lucky to, I mean, it was a bit strange, so I don't think I studied any Shakespeare at that point. Um, and you know, I feel that my education in general has been quite, has been fairly non-traditional, and at times that's given me a, sl a slight sense of kind of, I don't know, you know, do I have all of the sort of groundwork laid down? Um, I went to Sussex for my undergraduate, anyway, I might come on to that, but that's a, that was quite a non-traditional sort of learning path as well. But anyway, I, yeah, so I studied this for my A-levels, I think I probably first read it when I was about 16, um, and I I am um, I was completely I'd sort of grown up with fairy tales. I think we always have this kind of structure of or I did very much the structure of fairy tales in our minds that go very it's very, very deep in our culture. I, I think that I, I think that my daughter probably still has it. I think that, you know, we those remain these incredibly important stories in our culture. And so I'd read fairy tales in kind of a traditional form, the kind of ladybird books when I was, you know, very young, four or five, and then spent a lot of time, you know, as an older child watching Beauty and the Beast, you know, um, all those Disney films, which are just these huge kind of repeated narratives. I was, you know, I think there's probably a lot of young girls are um, very into Disney films. And I think Angela, I think The Bloody Chamber kind of was just really a perfect riposte to, to those and, uh, you know, just the most wonderful, brilliant shock um, and it just really, I think it had this, I think it really kind of, yeah, surprised me. I found it very audacious, um, very beautiful and kind of worrying and dark and, you know, sex sexy and violent and, yeah, just, you know, quite mind-blowing, really. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't say I'm a big kind of Carter fan or reader, not out of, not kind of, I'm not, not in a negative way, I just haven't particularly explored her other work after that point really I'd like to but I just I there just sort of haven't incredible about reading the bloody chamber as a kind of 16 year yeah. old 17 year old adolescent woman and be like what look at these nipples blood. <laughs> but and um, these beasts and yeah. and and yeah and where do you situate yourself as a woman you know in terms of these stories how do you think of your own narrative your mother's narrative you know your grandmother's mm. narrative it's and then you know rereading the the bloody chamber the the title story recently i'd forgotten what happens and i was just so thrilled when spoiler alert her mother turns mm. up and rescues i was like you know tingling it was just amazing i was just so overwhelmed by that i really thought that she was going to die i'd yeah, completely yeah. forgotten and i was thinking oh this is just like is this sort of like torture porn is this just kind of gross is the women you know violence against women like what i was slightly you know thinking am i gonna have to change this choice and then and then there's this i find she always incredible ending you. yeah and i actually struggled with angela carter when i was younger reading the books because i found sometimes 
you know, I felt like I I just blithely trotted down the path holding her hand, being like, oh my god, I cannot believe she's presenting women in this way. This is so derogatory. We are not all virgins. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then she'll like completely surprise you and actually you realise that it's a trick of the genre mm. and sh- that she's playing with mm. rather than um, a presentation of women that she necessarily agrees with. Shall we hear a little bit mm. from it? So this is from the end of um, The Tiger's Bride. And I, I was looking for this part because this is one part that without rereading, I remembered from my you know, 16-year-old reading as just being kind of deeply shocking and amazing. The valet bowed me inside the beast's room. The purple dressing gown, the mask, the wig were laid out on his chair. A glove was planted on each arm. The empty house of his appearance was ready for him, but he had abandoned it. There was a reek of fur and piss. The incense pot lay broken in pieces on the floor. Half-burned sticks were scattered from the extinguished fire. A candle stuck by its own grease to the mantelpiece lit two narrow flames in the pupils of the tiger's eyes. He was pacing backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, the tip of his heavy tail twitching as he paced out the length and breadth of his imprisonment between the gnawed and bloody bones. He will gobble you up. Nursery fears made flesh and sinew, earliest and most archaic of fears, fear of devourment. The beast in his carnivorous bed of bone and eye, white, shaking, raw, approaching him as if offering in myself the key to a peaceable kingdom in which his appetite need not be my extinction. He went still as stone. He was far more frightened of me than I was of him. I squatted on the wet straw and stretched out my hand. I was now within the field a force of his golden eyes. He growled at the back of his throat, lowered his head, sank onto his forepaws, snarled, showed me his his red gullet, his yellow teeth. I never moved. He snuffed the air as if to smell my fear. He could not. Slowly, slowly, he began to drag his heavy, gleaming weight across the floor towards me. A tremendous throbbing, as of the engine that makes the earth turn, filled the little room. He had begun to purr. The sweet thunder of this purr shook the old walls, made the shutters batter the windows until they burst apart and let in the white light of the snowy moon. Tiles came crashing down from the roof. I heard them fall into the courtyard far below. The reverberations of his purring rocked the foundations of the house. The walls began to dance. I thought, it will all fall. Everything will disintegrate. He dragged himself closer and closer to me until I felt the harsh velvet of his head against my hand, then a tongue abrasive as sandpaper. He will lick the skin off me, and each stroke of his tongue ripped off skin after successive skin, all the skins of a life in the world, and left behind a nascent patina of shining hairs. My earrings turned back to water and trickled down my shoulders. I shrugged the drops off my beautiful fur. You've spoken before about a sense of wonder, the richness of Carter's language and imagination. I think this passage really illustrates that. Can you expand on the sense of wonder and how it's informed your own writing? Because I thought that was quite interesting, particularly compared with your um, The End We Start From, which in some ways is quite sparing mm. in its use of language. Mm. I mean, it is very sparing, but it's also um, it's got 
there's quite a heavy use of metaphor mm. and mm. simile and some quite strange um, similes, which I think are perhaps slightly, um, what's the word, Counter, counterintuitive. Um, I think that she is similar. I think she's quite audacious in her use of, of metaphors um, and kind of very, yeah, just very... There's something very unafraid, something very rich and kind of delicious and surprising. I think surprising is the main, possibly the main thing that I... I mean, I I had a, a sort of rule when I was writing the and we start from that I wanted every line to be surprising, which I think is, you know, it was impossible to actually achieve that. But I think as a, as a kind of high point to keep aiming for, that was what I was... That was what I was doing. Um, and so, yeah, it seems almost like the opposite of my work in that it's, it's, it's very Baroque and kind of, you know, there's, there's like, um, it almost you might say a lot of um, embellishment. And mm. obviously I seem to cut a lot of that away. But I think, um, yeah, I don't, I think my, my, think my work isn't very sparing in its use of, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a place in which I think I use about three different um, similes for one thing <laughs> um, and you know and, I, and yeah. I kind of and I kind of was it was important to me to keep that and to kind of keep that sort of riffing on comparisons um so so yeah so I think I think that although there seems to we seem to have very different styles I think I can see I mean there's this amazing bit I remembered again um and a bit that struck me in the bloody chamber about a man being a lily and of course then lilies come to have this significance yeah. but when she initially says he was like a lily and then she sort of you this know lily white yeah man. yeah I found that I remember <clears throat> being surprised by that when I read it and being and being you know kind of yeah inspired by that and wowed by it um so and there's something about just about um the, the physicality the way that she writes about female physicality and embodiment and I think I I felt very early on that I wanted to write about how it, you know, very much how it felt to be in a woman's body, well, in, in my body, but, you know, in... in, in Which in, you do brilliantly. Oh, thank you. Well, that's my... I d and I don't quite know, you know, I used to think I don't really know where that came from. Why did I, you know, focus on that? And I, I think that it might have come at least partly from this, from this book. So, um, yeah, it's been quite a, a sort of self-education going back and, and looking at it again let's talk a bit more about women and their sexuality mm. um how how has she in sort of informed you to write about these things and you said before when we spoke about this um you found it very shocking mm. and sort of sumptuous and dark and intriguing and i think for me at least the way carter writes about sexuality and women is where my tension lies as mm. well. Like I, I find it, I find it quite difficult sometimes. Mm. I don't know. Everyone's a virgin yeah, and kind yeah. of shivering and pale yeah. and naked and seventeen and yeah, sweet. Um, yeah, it is, and it's and it's that world, and she's kind of entering that world of the woman in the fairy tale or the or the virgin in the fairy tale, mm. and kind of. But I do think that she, you know, she is doing that in order to subvert it and to and but it but it does it does lead to a sort of it does it does lead to a confrontation with that with that image in your mind and of, and of what that you know means means to you I think that it's I think that it was I think that it you know it's it's something that it's not yeah it's not it's not um 
free from problems or from, mm. you know, it's kind of putting you into that space, that problematic space. Yeah. But then it does have these exhilarating ways of working through that space, I think, of you know, in terms of, I think she very much um, sees the, the characters take hold of those situations in their own right. And you don't, you don't have the sense of them in the way that you, in the way that I certainly did as a child, the sense of the women completely being acted upon and being done to. Mm. Um, so you go into that, you know, she takes you deep, deep into that place. Mm. Um, which you've had to, and you, and, you know, it, it heightens your awareness of how much you've been in that place um, as a child, as a young woman. How much you continue to be put in that place. It's not really as though, you know, we've we've kind of we've got away from that. And then I felt that completely. I was so glad that I'd forgotten it because I completely relived that shock of being. Yeah, she's she's, you know, she's completely in that sort of horror position of being the woman who's about to be murdered and that dread of her own death and it's gathering and gathering and it's so oppressive and and the you know the dungeon and the mm. and then you know the escape and the way she continues it after that and they have this kind of and then we led this quiet life and this is what I did with the yeah. money and you know it's just amazing it's just really from the sublime to the mundane yeah yeah um so yeah I mean I think Going back to it now, it, make, it does make me want to explore her work further and, and think about it more. I think um, she's, yeah, I have her um, biography as well I want to read. She's a, yeah, fascinating. Incredible writer. Um, yeah, incredible writer. I think the passage that you chose as well, particularly, um, is particularly subversive because it comes directly after um, <clears throat> The Mr. Lion story, which mm. is another take on Beauty and the Beast, and then you have The Tiger's Bride, which is this one, which again is a kind of reworking of Beauty and the Beast. But f to me, it, f it seemed almost as if she she got to tell the story from her perspective. The, mm. the Mr. Lion story is you've got the traditional mm. narrative: Beauty comes back, and her tears, you know, turn him into mm. a man, and everyone's in love. And this, I found like really quite um chilling at moments mm. there's this tiger who can't speak at all mm. and then all he wants to do is see her naked see a virgin mm. naked and then eventually she kind of lets him and then go and going up into his room and the piss and the incense and then she turns into a tiger herself i found that kind of visceral and guttural yeah. and she's kind of like turning the in the way that the skin turns inside out, she's turning the fairy tale inside out in some ways. I mean, I think that's what's so amazing, actually, is that she's not, you know, it's, it's, if, it was di if it was too sort of didactic and kind mm. of, you know, just sort of, I don't know, almost like, you know, agitprop, you know, it, it sort of, you know, written to a certain formula of liberation, but she's not. She's sort of talking about our fantasies and our dark, you know, feelings and, our, and, and the way that we you know, almost in a dream, kind of, mm. our liberation and our subjugation are all kind of mixed up, you know? And I, so I think that that's what makes it so compelling. It's not like a recipe for, you know, better relations between yeah. men. I mean, yeah. what, what's going on there? He's <clears throat> licking her skin off to reveal... Uh, I mean... But maybe, you know, maybe it not, you know, it's just it's I love the way it's so it's so ambiguous and delicious and that makes it, you know, better in my view that yeah, well we you couldn't I mean, to reveal her true self, which is 
skinless, which is, you know, it's just, I mean, there's just so many ways you can, you can sort of riff off it. I think it's, it's amazing. And let's move on to talk a bit about Virginia Woolf. You have said that Virginia Woolf is the writer who gave you the fullest sense of what literature can achieve. <laughs> Sorry to laugh. I'm laughing Please at my do own, tell us. Protection. Um, well, um, again, I've yeah. I mean, Virginia Woolf's a writer who I've I, her work. I've read a lot more of it, and I'm, you know, um, more of a yeah. Wolfian, no, <laughs> not a Wolfian. Sorry. I'm just a fan, and um, I I read so I read a Room of One's Own um, on a train um, about sixteen as well, and just kind of thought, you know, what is this? And was I remember actually going to an interview, a university interview soon after. I obviously wasn't sixteen then; I was eighteen. Get the story straight, but um, and I and I was trying to. They were like, so I was like, I just read Room One's Own, it's amazing. And they were going, oh, yeah, tell us more about that. And I was just like, it's amazing. <laughs> I'm completely amazed. And, um, you know, they were, mm. I don't think I didn't, get in, I didn't get into that university. But I think I, I think I, I was just bowled over and kind of speechless with um, awe, um, really, um, by her mind, her, her thinking, um, the way that she, I mean, to me, she's, you know, this this writer, along with Joyce, but I just I just kind of get on with, I just, I admire, obviously, Joyce's, you know, I don't mean to say, you know, ultimate genius, but I, I didn't, I just don't, yeah, I just don't, I don't get as much pleasure from him. I just love her, I just love her work and... Um, really, really enjoy it, and it's this sense of she, you know, she's patterning consciousness, but at the same time, she's expanding our sense of what it is to think, what it is to to write and to read, and she's she expands my sense of what it is to be alive. Um, yeah, she's you know, she's the one. Um, <laughs> Should we hear a little? Extra? Yeah, let's go. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think I did very much better then than I did in the. University interview. No, wonderfully. <laughs> okay. I actually did exactly the same. That's why I was did laughing. You? Oh, I, right. put, I had to put it as a. We had to, had to like send in a kind of like. What, what books have you read recently? And yeah, yeah. I was like, put this one on because it's fifty pages and it's easy to read. And then and then was very amazed by it, but also very inarticulate about it. <laughs> it is. It's it's hard to sometimes when you really really love something, it's hard to talk about put it, it into words. Yeah. Okay. Um. So this is from the waves. The sun, risen, no longer couched on a green mattress, darting a fitful glance through watery jewels, bared its face and looked straight over the waves. They fell with a regular thud. They fell with a concussion of horses' hooves on the turf. Their spray rose like the tossing of lances and assegais over the riders' heads. They swept the beach with still blue and diamond-tipped water. They drew in and out with the energy, the muscularity of an engine which sweeps its force out and in again. The sun fell on cornfields and woods. Rivers became blue and many plaited lawns that sloped down to the water's edge became green as birds' feathers softly ruffling their plumes. The hills, curved and controlled, seemed bound back by thongs as a limb is laced by muscles, and the woods which bristled proudly on their flanks were like the curt, clipped mane on the neck of a horse. 
In the garden where the trees stood thick over flower beds, ponds and greenhouses, the birds sang in the hot sunshine, each alone. One sang under the bedroom window, another on the topmost twig of the lilac bush, another on the edge of the wall. Each sang stridently with passion, with vehemence, as if to let the song burst out of it, no matter if it shattered the song of another bird with harsh discord. Their round eyes bulged with brightness, their claws gripped the twig or rail. They sang, exposed without shelter to the air and the sun, beautiful in their new plumage, shell-veined or brightly mailed. Here barred with soft blues, here splashed with gold or striped with one bright feather. They sang as if the song were urged out of them by the pressure of the morning. They sang as if the edge of being were sharpened and must cut, must split the softness of the blue-green light, the dampness of the wet earth, the fumes and steams of the greasy kitchen vapour, the hot breath of mutton and beef, the richness of pastry and fruit, the, dam the damp shreds and peelings thrown from the kitchen bucket, from which a slow steam oozed on the rubbish heap. On all the sodden, the damp spotted, the curled with wetness, they descended, dry-beaked, ruthless, abrupt. They swooped suddenly from the lilac bough or the fence. They spied a nail and tapped the shell against a stone. They tapped furiously, methodically, until the shell broke and something slimy oozed from the crack. They swept and soared sharply in fights, high into the air, twittering short, sharp notes and perched in the upper branches of some tree and looked down upon leaves and spires beneath and the country white with blossom flowing with grass and the sea which beat like a drum that raises a regiment of plumed and turbaned soldiers. Now and again their songs rang together in swift scales like the interlacings of a mountain stream whose waters meeting foam and then mix and hasten quicker and quicker down the same channel, brushing the same broad leaves. But there is a rock they sever. The sun fell in sharp wedges inside the room. Whatever the light touched became dowered with, in, with a fan, fanatical existence. A plate was like a white lake. A knife looked like a dagger of ice. Suddenly tumblers revealed themselves upheld by streaks of light. Tables and chairs rose to the surface as if they had been sunk underwater and rose, filled with red, orange, purple like the bloom on the skin of ripe fruit. The veins on the glaze of the china, the grain of the wood, the fibres of the matting became more and more finely engraved. Everything was without shadow. A jar was so green that the eye seemed sucked up through a funnel by its intensity and stuck to it like a limpet. Then shapes took on mass and edge. Here was the boss of a chair, here the bulk of a cupboard. And as the light increased, flocks of shadow were driven before it and conglomerated and hung in many pleated folds in the background. Thank you. That was beautiful. Um, you've also spoken about the fact that Virginia Woolf made you afraid to be a writer. Mm. Can you talk about this feeling and about the moment that you knew you could or wanted to be a writer? Sure. Um, I, I, I think I decided to be a writer when I was about 12. Um, <laughs> Sounds a bit ridiculous, but I um, I wrote a story and I remember it was my first experience of really writing something and really feeling completely absorbed and obsessed with it. And then my teacher read it out to the class and it was like this, I don't know, it was this strange moment of kind of something so private and then something being heard. And it was this, it was just sort of the most intense thing that had ever happened to me. And I, I don't know, it was just this very particular moment where I thought, that's it, that's what I want to do. But I didn't write my first book until I was... I mean, it's not... I think it's quite a normal age to write your first book, but I think I was 30 or something, 31. 
Um, so that's quite a few years after, well, nearly 20 years after I decided to be a writer. But I was writing all that time. But I think one of the things that did inhibit me, and I think this is um, only natural to an extent and, and probably good, is that I, you know, I did study literature a lot and I just found everybody else's work so amazing um, that I thought, I can't do as well as that. I can't, certainly can't do better than that. What's the point, really? You know, I think not really consciously, I didn't write those words down in a notebook or anything, but I think deep down you have that sense when you, you know, read these works of, of genius and, you know, the heights of what's been achieved and you just, yeah, you just think that's okay, that's been done, it's, it's, it's done. <laughs> this <laughs> you know? is pretty good. Yeah, just leave it I, can, here. I can be an appreciator of great literature, but then I think that really what, what sort of overtook me was that I... Um, I just have to write. It's a sort of, you know, it's a compulsion and, it, and it's, a, it's a necessity for me. And so um, I just, yeah, I decided to do that and to, and to do my best, really. Um, I wouldn't say I've overcome that sense exactly, but I just got on with it anyway. And um, just to go back to this particular passage, mm. um, why did you pick this particular one? Um, Out of all, of all of the words of Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like... I picked that, I wanted to pick one of the italicised sections because I think they're very beautiful and very striking. But, I mean, I I had, again, completely forgotten. I think it's part of my way of working that I forget things a lot and come back to them and maybe I'm just forgetful and I'm, you know, making the best of it. But I'd forgotten <laughs> that the waves um, obviously has this... Um, motion of going back and forth from italicized sections about the natural world to non-italicized sections which is which is exactly what my book does um and you know that's quite a big that's quite a big part of it and that's quite a, a strong instinct that I had right from the beginning of writing the we start from was that it had to have these two modes these two voices and I mean I can't think of where else I mean there are obviously other things where different kinds of text are you know juxtaposed but I think that sense of of human life unfolding and then natural, the natural world as this kind of very huge backdrop and this sense of time, of natural time, of human time, this kind of stream of life that's just flowing in and out from different characters. I think that's, I mean, yeah, huge, hugely influenced me. And as I said at the beginning, I sort of picked these books on instinct or slightly, you could say randomly, I could have had a list of, I don't know, 30 books or something, I found it um, difficult to choose. But then, um, in the end, it makes, seems to make total sense, the ones that I've chosen, because they, they do seem to be ones that have really um, informed my um, sense of what I want to write, really. <clears throat> Picking up on your stream-of-life metaphor, mm. let's talk about <laughs> water. Yeah. Um, because, obviously, the waves uses the sea mm. as this amazing literary motif and you have the natural world and in particular water in your book um what what do you, i mean what drew, what drew you to water as a as the motif um well i mean i think that the waves probably had a lot to do with it the book i mean i now i do um but i think I mean, the sea is... The, obviously, for my book, for the end we start from, it's, you know, people have said, could it be another disaster? Could it have been, you know, um, I don't know a nuclear bomb or, you know, an earthquake? But I think... Just for the readers, 
in the end we start oh. from there is a a, a, a flood of yeah. such huge proportions it changes an unnamed western locations borders and life forever essentially the the, the oncoming flood that we're all going to have to negotiate in the next years sorry no no um thank you yeah it's um it's for me it's definitely the only the, the only dark disaster that it could have been it wasn't like a good disaster um and because it's very much about the the water you know the, the sense of water as being so completely integral to our sense of humanity the sense that we that we grow in amniotic fluid that we're you know the waters break and we're born this sense of the wateriness of the body you know we're what is it three quarters water I don't know yeah. if that's true but we're always told it. and that the, the world is three quarters water and the sense that we, we came out of water that we um you know evolved from sea creatures um and obviously then you know with climate change the sense that that water is rising that it's going to take over the world in some way unless we um unless we change things um I think that for me yeah water it's also you know it's it's when I was looking at the um creation myths and at religion you know it's such a central um motif it's not a motif but it's you know it's just it's just the it's it's in a way, you know, it's, it's such a fundamental way that we understand ourselves. Um, so, so I think that, yeah, it was always going to be water, but I can see completely um, this this obsession, as it were, with water being very much bolstered by um, by the reading of the waves. And I think I think about it a lot when I look at the sea itself, and it's just one of those descriptions, one of those very very powerful descriptions. She just repeats it again and again mm. and again. And the reading of the book, so. I um I brought my copy today, which is falling apart, and it's very important to me because I took it around when I was um, travelling on my own around South America, and I carried it around with me, um, and I was reading it for a long time. I will say because it's quite it's quite a difficult thing to read, and I think I was interspersing it with other things, and then I just remember I just had it, so that's you know partly why it's so beaten up because I was just um, I was just carrying it around. For months and months um but I had a lot of kind of very particular experiences reading it in very particular locations that I can remember very clearly okay um for example um so I was staying in I mean you know I don't want to get into sort of gapier tales but anyway um I was staying in the um in the cloud forest on my own and I was kind of trying to have this sort of retreat by myself I was in this cabin in the forest on my own meditating and falling asleep and you know it was really beautiful but at night I was absolutely terrified because I was I was just alone in the forest and you know I was, I was so, you just read Angela Carter and you knew what I was so scared and I wanted to be brave and on my own and not scared and actually most of the time in Ecuador even though sometimes I was in vaguely dangerous scenarios I was not ever scared I yeah. remember this amazing fearlessness and you know I guess when you're young and fearless and etc I was so scared at night and um and I used to read the waves <laughs> and it really soothed me actually and not you know oh, it puts you to sleep it's not a good advert for a book but it was it's it, I had this really really profound experience of being you know genuinely absolutely terrified and then being really soothed not I'm not sorry. just not just soothed to sleep but really soothed into a kind of um I know we're going to maybe talk about this later but a kind of a kind of spiritual sense of you know all of life and you really do get this sense in wolf of it's not just about you know me 
Megan, I'm a woman, I'm 34, you know, I'm, I'm sort of part of this whole collective consciousness, you know, and it's, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a really um, profound and, yeah, important thing that I think I, I, think I took from this book and, and took onwards without, without fully realising it, without fully kind of, but rereading it again, I, I, I feel it again. I sort you of slip into a kind of meditative state Yeah, when you read it. I found, um, I actually read it. But in two days for the show. Oh, um, and that <laughs> you was must be feeling very strange. <laughs> yeah, two days. It yeah. was quite intense. Um, I, when I and I just had my wisdom teeth out. Oh my goodness! And I went to some. I went to some places in my mind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it does. It kind of it, like you say, it rocks you, mm. like to the rhythm of mm. the language and the rhythm of the sea. Um, and interesting, you read it during the period of, I guess, feeling quite stressed and scared, because I wanted to talk a bit about writing in relation to emotional and mental duress. I feel like The Waves addresses the extraordinary, extraordinary pressures that can come with relatively ordinary circumstances. And to turn that on its head, your novel presents characters just trying to find some semblance of ordinary existence under completely extraordinary circumstances um can you talk a bit about trying to capture the state of emotional duress and also writing a, a sort of therapeutic process yeah I mean I think that I'm drawn towards um states of emotional <laughs> duress I think partly because for me writing it is it is um therapeutic in the sense that as I was saying earlier it's for me it's completely essential it's something I have to do to survive as a as a human and you could sound rather grandiose saying this and I don't mean I have to be published to survive I just I have to write to to be myself to kind of have any chance of um kind of keeping going in a happy way I think it is yeah it's my it's my salvation, and part of that is 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 the is processing um, difficult feelings and different difficult experiences, and not in the sense of necessarily writing about them um, explicitly or you know tr truthfully in inverted commas, but writing, but kind of being able to. And it's actually why 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 I think I love fiction so much, and I'm drawn to that is and stories and narratives is being able to kind of mulch mulch. <laughs> What a great word, not, um, but yeah, kind of mix it all together as you do, as you, again, as you do in dreams, mm -hmm. um, really kind of deal with it, I think, in some ways. You can, you know, it's not processing as in, oh, I wrote about this terrible thing that happened to me, now I feel better, but you really, you really um, change it, as I was saying, you know, Carter really change it, you really change the story in a way mm -hmm. for yourself, able to take control of it um, in a way. And also, uh, maybe... Um, change it but also not change it like go through it and see it for what it is yeah. or how you feel about it and then be able to leave it There's something like um, you, in your original selection you also chose Bluets and mm. you mentioned it mm. before and I found that such a powerful reading experience um, to have Maggie Nelson kind of admit to this fraught if, if you haven't read Bluets it's contemplation on the colour blue but it woven in is Maggie Nelson dealing with the ending of a very traumatic love affair and also um, a friend has a life-changing accident 
which renders her very disabled. Um, and I found that amazing because she kind of presents it and it's she's just like, this is shit and this mm. is how I feel. Yeah, yeah. And kind of, you, you do change the story, but also you, yeah, I guess you just, you own it even if you yeah. don't change it. Yeah, I yeah. I mean, I think Maggie, it's really interesting because I have been thinking quite a lot recently about the difference between writing, you know, memoir and or non-fiction and writing something as you know fic- a fictionalized version i mean i think i think both i think both you know can be really can be mm. therapeutic or you know if you want if you want to put it like that but i think that i mean i love the way that maggie nelson writes um well what does um sharon olds call it um apparently personal she wrote, apparently seemingly personal or something I can't remember mm. but yeah so Sharon Olds says it's pattern you know my work's apparently personal or it's there's mm. another word someone's gonna tell me anyway but yeah um it seems to be about her experience so Maggie Nelson's work seems to be about her I, I don't know you know I'm not sort of imposing some kind of this is exactly her life but she she has this really clear beautiful voice and she writes about herself and it's I yeah I, I absolutely love it but I think I think for me so far anyway where I've found the most kind of success I guess with my work is where I'm actually yeah a bit more in that dream space of, of fiction where things are jumbled up and people aren't quite oh that's not exactly you know, that's, that's who, not my father that's yeah, another yeah. face you know it's kind of it's all just a little bit changed and distorted and I, I think I find that um so far has been yeah the most the most therapeutic thing for me and to write I think the, the end we start from you know it's she's I was really inhabiting somebody else's mind, somebody else's consciousness. I felt she's not me. She's um, she's a lot, she's a lot calmer and sort of more sane than me, I think. But she's, you know, it was really wonderful and exciting and to 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 be her or to 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 live in her mind for when I was writing the book. I, I had a, a great time being she's her. She's wicked. Um, let's move on to talk a little bit about Frank. Good old Frank O'Hara. What do you love about Frank? Oh. <laughs> Everything. No, um, I have to be careful not to be too, yeah, as I was in my university interview, not too kind of soppy and simple in Look, my you, love. You've already got into the university of this radio show. You can be as soppy uh, as you are. <laughs> so, I, I mean, Frank O'Hara, actually, I have, you know, I have studied him at you know, I wrote my unfilled dissertation about Frank O'Hara, but as I think I wrote to you, I think it was it was mostly just an excuse to just read loads of Frank O'Hara poems and just hang out with Frank O'Hara as much as I could. Um, I yeah, I I love his. To me, his his works. It's so completely full of life. It's you know, it's written however many years ago now, 60, 70 years ago. Um, he is sadly very much deceased, but. It's so, it feels so completely alive. It feels completely, not contemporary in the sense of, oh, it could be written right now in a sort of, I don't know, in a sort of fashion, fashion way. It's just that it's, it feels like it's happening right now. It's happening in, in, in my life. It's happening in your mm. life. You know, it's, 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 it's just totally lively and completely, um, you know, it's, 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 he balances um, the tone so amazingly. I once wrote an essay about just all about his tone, um, which should help me now, but it's not going to because it's a long time ago. But he 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 manages to, to to kind of it's not even switch from kind of humor to sincerity. He just manages to carry both of them. He um, in his voice, you know, he he completely 
he's 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 both you know he's joyful he's funny and he's um since it's not sincere i don't know if that's the right word you know he's he's real and he's full of love um so full of love and um yeah i guess the highest compliment that anyone says about the end we start from is that it's all about love and it's full of love obviously in a very different way but i yeah i you know i couldn't ask for more than that because that's well, that's wonderful, you know, and it's, yeah, it's a, you know, I think his work is a, is a, is a gift to the world. And I was, yeah, I was very lucky to read it really when I was, and to become obsessed with it when I was, I don't know, how old was I? I was maybe 20. Um, I had a teacher at Sussex who was also a poet, Keston Sutherland, and he introduced me to a lot of poetry. Um, and I was particularly besotted with Frank O'Hara and also Wordsworth, mm. <laughs> contrast, um, and, um, I got really obsessed with words. Uh, I actually read some last night. Tintinabi. Like, <laughs> yeah, my favourite. Um, but um, I, yeah, and I kind of, you know, I've read, I've read other other poetry since. I do read other poetry, but I just, I, yeah, I do come back to him. And there's something about him where his voice is very much in my mind. I mean, it might be partly because I used to have kind of a lot of, what are they, you know. Um, what do we used to have? Mini discs or any anyway, tapes or something? Cassettes? <laughs> cassette tapes. With, um, I don't think they were cassettes actually, but anyway, let's just pretend. With, with, with where songs were kind of interspersed with poems of his. Actually, mini discs. I think mini discs, I yeah. Never got, I never got them. Oh my goodness, so sweet and small. But um, so I, I, yeah, I, I used to have him sort of in my, no, it was an iPod. Oh, Depressing. No. <laughs> Depressing. The truth is coming back to me. I'm fictionalizing it, and it's I not true. It's not true. Either. It was an iPod. Um, anyway, on my iPod, gross. I used to yeah. So it would it would so it would then it would come on Frank O'Hara, interspersed with all my music. And so it just happens, you know, I'm cycling around or something, and just a, a line of his work will just come into my mind just all the time. And um, so I feel like yeah, I just kind of live with his words. Um, inside me all the time and it's and it's great so Should we hear some? thank you frank <laughs> okay, so this is called you are gorgeous and i'm coming which must be one of the great titles of a poem in my humble opinion um and um yeah it's a fun fun fact um it's an acrostic of his of his lover the dance of vincent warren um, which I just, I just, I don't know, I love that. It's very sweet. Vaguely, I hear the purple roar of the torn down Third Avenue L. It sways slightly but firmly like a hand or a golden down thigh. Normally, I don't think of sounds as coloured unless I'm feeling corrupt, concrete, rambo, obscurity of emotion, which is simple and very definite, even lasting. Yes, it may be that dark and purifying wave, the death of boredom, Nearing the heights themselves may destroy you in the pure air to be further complicated, confused, empty but refilling, exposed to light. With the past falling away as an acceleration of nerves, thundering and shaking aims, its aggregating force like the metro towards a realm of encircling travel, rending the sound of adventure and becoming ultimately local and intimate, repeating the phrases of an old romance which is constantly renewed by the endless originality of human loss. The air, the stumbling quiet of breathing, newly the heaven stars all out, we are all for the captured time of our being. 
Thank you. You're welcome. It's very difficult to read. I will say a disclaimer. That was Apologies to Franco Horror fans. When we were talking before, you spoke about um, the fact that when you were reading Franco Horror, you were also falling in love with someone and falling in love with poetry. Can you tell us about that experience? Yes. Yeah, so, um, I mean, obviously, as I said, Frank O'Hara's poems are very much often about love and the section that... So he has this... Because I sort of studied his, his life and all his poetry, then they're, they're arranged um, chronologically in his collected poems, I'm pretty sure. And the section... So when he was very much in love with Vincent Warren and wrote all these poems, it's this middle section, which anyway, mm. I'm just fiddling with now because it's completely falling out of my book because those are the poems that I love the most. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, so I, I met my husband at university and I very much, yeah, it was a very intense time where I also just, I don't think, I hadn't really, I mean, I had studied poetry, you know, at, at, um, at GCSE, level but I hadn't had that real experience of just being completely swept away and completely feeling as though like this is it this is life this is the best thing about life is poetry and reading poetry and having poems live with you and you know I, I hadn't had that experience and I very much did um I did so so with Kesson I did this poet poetry course there what was it called lyric poetry and personal experience or something I think it was pre-named the course and um and it kind of went th- sweep of poetry from um who was it from um well it was further back than Keats but anyway all the way up to kind of J.H. Pritten and so we read a huge uh, a huge kind of um overview really of of a lot of wonderful poetry and I yeah and I had that really strong experience of just of just of just loving it and and yeah I guess engaging at that level where you you know, you write essays and you, and I, and I, and I think I thought then oh, I, I want to be an academic and this is what I want to do. And I want to, um, write about poetry forever. And, but in the end, um, I haven't really gone on to do that, although I might, I might do more sort of studying in the future, but it, but it, it took a while, but in the end, I think it inspired me to, to write poetry. But again, I think I was quite intimidated by, you know, by, yeah, and a, and a and a sort of aesthetic sense that that poetry should be a certain way, or that you know I didn't feel that I that I could write poetry, that I was sort of equipped somehow. I don't quite sure, but I I was inhibited for quite a while from from writing poetry just by my own nervousness, really. I think, and not and lack of sense of direction of what I was doing in poetry. And then I did write my own poems after I, but not for a long time after I. <coughs> it was after I had my daughter. <coughs> Um, so I was about 20, 28, and um, I just started to write poems. And I, po- poem poetry for me, people often, because in my biography and things, it mentions that, and they sort of think I'm mainly a poet, but I just happened to write this novel. But really, it was a process for me of writing poetry and then kind of bringing poetry more into my fiction. I think I was always going to probably be a be a fiction writer. Um, and so it's not a, not a stepping stone. Well, obviously, that's the phrase that's coming into my head. For me, it's not. I'm not saying poetry is a stepping stone to fiction at all. But for me, um, it, it functioned that way um, as kind of a way of expanding my sense of, of what fiction could be, really. Yeah, and one of the things I love about The End We Start From is, I mean, when I first read it, I, I kind of took it as poetry initially. Well, I was, well... I felt I, it, it has such strong poetic elements, 
you know, and it's so lyrical and I feel like you can really, the poetry has definitely trickled into the rivulets of it. Um, and I find that it tells the story in a far more powerful way because of that. Yeah, I mean, to me, like, it's, you know, I don't, I don't feel particularly obsessed or bothered by sort of the definition of what it is, but I certainly, I think there is a sense in which I do feel it's, there's a closeness to a prose poem or something, in the sense that when people say, oh, it's very short, it's so short, my kind of, my instinctive reaction is like, it's so long, like, it's, <laughs> it's such a long poem, you know, <laughs> it took me ages, like, because to me, um, as a poem, it's, 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 it's really big and long yeah. covers a huge amount but I don't you know I don't think I don't feel a necessity to call it a poem um it it it's a novel in the sense that it you know it has this very very strong narrative, narrative yeah. um drive which I was quite surprised by really um but I think um I think it was a question of kind of of kind of fusing all those different influences because I I mean something like the Angela Carter you know obviously it has this hugely strong story and when I was a child I read you know as most of us do you know read and read and read and read and read and read and read um, and then of course it all had these very strong stories and I didn't I think my when I studied later on I sort of thought oh that's not the way I'm going to write I'm going to write very experimental things that are not driven by story um, but in the end that that was what sort of that was what gave my work its energy and so it was kind of claiming all of those different influences not sort of not uh, not trying to say it's not this and it's not this and shutting things out just saying yeah, it can be all of those all of those things um one of the things i love about poetry is its i guess spiritual element that it can bring a reader closer to something um that is maybe unnameable through a kind of blend of sound and sense. Is there something spiritual for you in good literature and how has your religious past fed into your writing? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always found, um, I think my strongest kind of connection, my most sort of <coughs> profound <coughs> connections in life, apart from with people, <laughs> um, with um, both religion and literature. And I, and I did have a phase in my life where I was very religious and I thought that I was going to have to choose between religion and literature in a sense and actually choose religion at one point. Um, but it's turned out the other way and I've very much chosen literature and I'm no longer um, religious in the same way at all. But um, for me, I mean, I joke and sort of say, well, literature is my is my religion. It's a bit, it's a bit silly sounding, but in the sense that, yeah, that's where I find, you know, the deepest meanings. That's, yeah, the, the sort of the, the meaning of my life. Um, and, and I think I read something the other day actually about form and literature and religion and how religion, I mean, I don't think this is, you know, there's, there's arguments against this, but religion, it, it can feel very con containing very constraining it fits us within a certain form I mean it can also be expansive and um and freeing but I think that something I ultimately felt was that I couldn't be as free as I wanted to be as a writer whilst um maintaining that same kind of um religious sort of um devotion it doesn't mean that I don't have that that spiritual sense I mean to be honest I haven't worked this through enough to be speaking about it on the radio <laughs> quite yet but I'm it's it's a work in progress but certainly right now you know literature is is 
the way that I find those those meanings. But I'm really interested in in the relationship between the two actually, and and exploring that. And thanks. I think now we're going to hear a bit from your own book. Sleep when they sleep went the old advice in a book far away and underwater. But as soon as Z is asleep and the door is closed, I am more awake than I've ever been in my life. The white walls have a friendliness, a pattern of faces, more features every day. There is an old lady close to our bed. She seems to have a beard. I wonder if I might find R made of textured paint effects, or if I can trace him a path to us this way. When I try to see his face, all I get is Z, who pushes his bald head into my neck at night. I wonder if he misses R somewhere in there. Synapses are electrical messages, didn't they say? Crackling colours like northern lights or deep sea creatures, floating miles below and right inside us. Night speeds by and we lose it in lamenting. Here comes the place, the right turn where they all live untouched by sorrow. Of course, he likes it when I cover myself in a tea towel and reappear, like my mother reappeared, like her mother did. The revelation that something can come back again and again and again. We actually grow things here. We put seeds in the ground and they grow, sometimes. The wind is strong and the soil is something, too much something. There is no electricity, but there is the old magic, wood and wick and spark, flames of all sizes. The taps turn around and around to nothing, but there is a well with a rope and bucket, like in a nursery rhyme. When I wake up in the morning, I do not know where I am. My body registers nothing at this. Where doesn't seem to be the question anymore. I take a rug from the house and put Z on it. We sit in the rough field under the sky, which races away from us towards the happening. We have arrived at the non-happening, it seems. The invisible growth of Z's body, the tiny increments of our meals coming out of the soil. One night, H gets an old radio working. We hear static, a fruity post-coital crackle. What was left of the beginning, I heard once. The mainland is on fire, they say in so many words. After the flood, the fire. I'm losing the story. I am forgetting. I am covered in babies. C and Z are both asleep on me. O is knitting of all things. The candles thin and fizz. The long children are in bed. O and I like to imagine our husbands together on a raft or another island. Luck is one of those words that has no meaning anymore, if it ever did. Sometimes I tell myself R is on top of Big Ben. He is clinging to the point. One day I take my clothes off and walk into the sea. I leave O with Z and C with her eyes on my bare back. I put my hand over my belly, on my breasts, light for once, drifting in the water like anemones. When I come out, I am tingling. The cold doesn't leave. It has taken root. 
Thank you so much, and thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Just a reminder, um, The End We Start From is published by Picador in the UK and by Grove Atlantic in the US and has just come out in paperback, and I very much recommend that you get yourselves a copy. Well, the next poem uh, is uh, one of a series uh, of poems that I wrote uh, at work on my lunch hour, which uh, City Lights is going to publish uh, next year under the title Lunch Poems, because Ferlinghetti thought it was so amusing that anyone was sitting around typing during their lunch hour. So he said, why don't you put them together and we'll publish them as Lunch Poems. Um, this one is called Adieu to Norman, Bonjour to Joan and Jean Paul. It's for a friend of mine who was going to France and I had to hurry up and do it because I was having a farewell lunch with him. It is 12.10 in New York, and I am wondering if I will finish this in time to meet Norman for lunch. Ah, lunch. I think I am going crazy. What with my terrible hangover and the weekend coming up at excitement-prone Kenneth Cokes. I wish I were staying in town and working on my poems at Jones Studio for a new book by Grove Press, which they will probably not print. But it is good to be several floors up in the dead of night, wondering whether you are any good or not. And the only decision you can make is that you did it. Yesterday, I looked up the Rue Frémicourt on a map and was happy to find it like a bird flying over Paris, a ses environs, which unfortunately did not include Seine et which I don't know, as well as a number of other things. And Alan is back talking about God a lot, and Peter is back not talking very much. And Joe has a cold and is not coming to Kenneth, although he is coming to lunch with Norman. I suspect he is making a distinction. Well, who isn't? I wish I were reeling around Paris instead of reeling around New York. I wish I weren't reeling at all. It is spring. The ice has melted. The recar is being poured. We are all happy and young and toothless. It is the same as old age. The only thing to do is simply continue. Is that simple? Yes, it is simple because it is the only thing to do. Can you do it? Yes, you can, because it is the only thing to do. Blue light over the Bois de Boulogne, it continues. The Seine continues. The Louvre stays open, it continues. It hardly closes at all. The Bar American continues to be French. De Gaulle continues to be Algerian, as does Camus. Shirley Goldfarb continues to be Shirley Goldfarb. And Jane Hazen continues to be Jane Froelicher, I think. And Irving Sandler continues to be the balayeur des artistes, and so do I. Sometimes I think I'm in love with painting. And surely the piscine d'Aligny continues to have water in it, and the floor continues to have tables and newspapers and people under them. And surely we shall not continue to be unhappy. We shall be happy, but we shall continue to be ourselves. Everything continues to be possible. René Sharp, Pierre Reverdy, Samuel Beckett, it is possible, isn't it? I love Reverdy for saying yes, though I don't believe it.